available to answer your call right now. Please leave your name and phone number at the tone. We will get back to you. I saw you today. I mean, I see you every day. But today, I was watching you at work. I like to watch you work. I like to watch you not work, too. I wanted to talk to you, but you seemed busy, so I decided it could wait till later. I'm not sure if you realize how often I visit you. You would probably think I was obsessed if you saw how many times I came into the shop when you were working. I just like being around you, you know? Well, anyways, I was coming to the shop to ask about who you were with yesterday. You see, I drove by your place while you were at work, just wanted to check in on things, and I noticed someone else's car in the driveway. So I got nervous that you had an uninvited guest in your home. Wouldn't that be terrifying? I decided to check around your house and look through the windows, and that's when I saw him, a man, sitting on the couch with your son watching TV. I couldn't believe my eyes. There was another man sitting on our couch watching our TV with our son. I mean, I know he's not my son, but he might as well be, right? took all of me not to burst through the front doors and strangle him. Could you imagine the look on your son's face, though, if I did that? I mean, he hasn't even met me yet, so I wonder if he would think I was a crazy intruder. How would I explain that one to him? Don't worry. I decided to leave. I didn't want to come off as that crazy, possessive type of boyfriend, you know? So I figured I would just talk to you about it later. I'm sure there's some rational reason for another guy to be around. Maybe it was your brother. I know about your brother. I drove back to your work. It always calms me to see your car parked outside the store. I like to know where you are. Do you remember when you got that call around lunchtime asking about lava lamps? That was me. I think you knew that, though. You have the prettiest voice, and you were so helpful. You tried to get my name and number, but you know I can't give that to you. I love teasing you on the phone. I like when you sound happy on the phone, but truth be told, I also like when you sound scared. There's something sexy about how scared your voice sounds when you answer your phone at home. It's like you know I'm calling you. Is that insane of me to say? I mean, you know how much I love you. How you're my everything, right? That should give you a sense of relief. So yeah, when you got done work, I followed you, to make sure that you got home safely. You can't trust too many people these days, what with serial killers going around after pretty young girls and all. When you pulled into your driveway, the man sitting on our couch came out of the front door to greet you. I saw you give him a hug. That wasn't a brother-sister hug. I can tell these things. I almost got out of the car to confront you right there, but then I saw that he was leaving, I didn't want to startle the man. Could you imagine if I jumped out of the car and tackled him on your front lawn? Wild. I watched him leave, and that's when I decided I needed to drive home right then to call and talk to you about this over the phone. We have our best conversations over the phone, don't you think? So here it is. I love you. But who are you cheating on me with? Don't lie to me. Who was that man? That was not your brother, And that was not just a friend. What does that even mean, just a friend? I know what guys want. I know how they think. You are my girlfriend. I can't believe you're cheating on me. After everything we've been through, I love you so much I could kill you. You know, that's what I should do. Just kill you. Why not? 
I feel like the only way you would be with me was if you were dead. I wish you would just stop lying to me. The next time I see you, I'm going to cut you into little bits so no one will ever find you. I'm Leslie. I'm Holly. And we would be dead. line was like something he said it's like really yeah ew that's intense oh man it gives me like did you see joker mm-hmm. gives me those vibes how he had like such a distinct vision of what his life was like and yeah. then it wasn't that at all exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so scary. I got you. You did good job <laughs> and you like did a male voice which I have a very hard time doing mm. Good job. Yeah. It, it was the tomboy in me. <laughs> Get it. I always feel like I sound way too feminine when yeah. I try to do that. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. It's a Leslie episode this week. Hooray! What? <laughs> Ooh, there's Put an in air that horn. buzzing sign. Yeah. <laughs> Put in the air horn. <laughs> Perfect. We need it. <laughs> Leslie told a really fascinating story for one of our I think our first, like, two campfire nights, it was like the second or third. It was really early on last year. And we've been talking about having you expand it ever since then. So this is the week. Yay. Yay, I'm so excited. (laughs) I did it. I did the thing. You did. I'm so excited to hear a story tonight. What what story are you telling us before I keep going? I am telling everyone about the disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott. Oh, Dorothy Jane. I know. I love her name. That is a good name. Mm Mm-hmm. It's so, like, I don't know, old-timey. Yeah. I know this is, like, a 70s one, but it sounds like it's, like, 30s and 40s. hmm Dorothy Jane. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited to hear a story. And if there's one thing I love, it's a fascinating case. And if there's two things I love, it's a fascinating case and a healthy dose of validation. Oh, gosh. I love a bottle of validation. Ugh, same. So with our live show coming up this week, that's right, I said this week. Oh, boy. Air horns again. (laughs) (laughs) We could really use some validating words to make our eyes a little less puffy and our skin radiating a healthy glow. I'd prefer an otherworldly glow, but I guess we'll take what we can get. (laughs) And you can help us achieve this by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a minute, but it makes all the difference in the world to us. Truly, the only way for this podcast to significantly move forward is either for us to attain an extremely wealthy, an extremely old fan who wants to leave us an enormous advertising budget in their will. What if that happened? My goodness, that would be wild. (laughs) It would be great. But if we can't get that... We need you, our very much alive fiends, to leave us a few kind words. 
And since we don't seem to attract a lot of super wealthy geriatric listeners, it's up to you guys to help us out. Man, what if we had to like stay in a haunted house for a night to get, like, get the will? I would do that. Yeah. A second. You can do that. You would have I'll be to. on the outside. You know, we'd have to with like a walkie talkie. Make sure you're, I'll bring you snacks. I feel like it would be conditional <laughs> that we both be there. <sighs> we would live. You could stay know. awake all night for one night too. Oh, for sure. I'd be, no, actually, I'd be like, I'm going to go to bed. You would. I'd be like, good night. Yeah. I'd be awake all night plastered against a window or something. So anxious. (laughs) So you'd feel safe because I was there being terrified the whole time. Great. No worries. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to our Patreon where for just a little monthly donation, you can get extra minisodes, our patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies, Discounts at our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and much more. And this month, we have an extra discussion about Ed Kemper mm-hmm. that we um, are going to include for our patrons. And I think we're going to get a movie in probably next week. Hopefully. I'm thinking, yeah, we'll That's get a movie. Goal. We'll get one in this month, <laughs> I promise. We'll, we'll figure it out, but we're definitely doing a movie. And if all of that seems a little bit much for you, then you can simply share any of our content to your social media feed. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell that guy you see every day on your walk that you can't quite figure out. Tell everyone, and then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of hanging out together, full of segues this My week. God. We hope to see all of our local fiends at our first ever live show at Tyndall Road Brewery in Bordentown this Saturday. <laughs> More air horns. (laughs) Yeah. They're everywhere this week. (laughs) There are still, still, I think, one or two VIF passes available, I think. Do we have a couple left or no? I think we're done. I think we're Are we done? Yeah. Okay. So, never mind. (laughs) Um, General admission, though, at the door is free, and we have been assured that they're not going to turn people away. So, you might have to stand, but you can most likely get in. Uh, Bordentown is like a really cute little town, and it's going to be a super fun time. The show's title is Twist and Shout. We're serving you guys two tales with terrifying twists. And I cannot wait to see you all, well, all of you who are local, on Saturday. I'm so excited for this. I know, me too. It's going to be such a party. I'm buying a new dress this week. I have one. Do you? I got it in (gasps) Salem. You did? I did. Oh, wait, you told me about that dress. I'm excited. Oh, Leslie's Mm going to look really cute. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to work on it. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll see what we can do. So I think that's all the business. Leslie, do you have any more business before you head into your story for this week? If I did, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) If you did, you get to talk for the next hour. Yeah. So you can just bring it up whenever you want. Cool. (laughs) All right, then. On with the show. Wait, can I say it this week? Sure, you can say it. On with the show. (laughs) On the evening of May 28th, 1980, 32-year-old Dorothy Jane Scott was attending an employee meeting when she noticed one of her co-workers, Conrad Bostron, was looking quite ill. Conrad tried to make it through the meeting, but a red mark on his arm was starting to get more inflamed and uncomfortable. Dorothy convinced Conrad to let her take him to the ER to get looked at. Pam Head, another co-worker, offered to go for support. Before heading to the hospital, Dorothy told the pair she needed to stop by her parents' house to check in on her son and let them all know that she was helping out a friend. Dorothy had a four-year-old son named Shanti and often left him with her parents when she had work. 
and her parents were happy to help. The next part will be more important later. So while at her parents, Dorothy, who was wearing a black scarf, changed into a red scarf before leaving the house to take Conrad to the hospital. That's a choice. I know. Also, like, Shanti is a cute little name. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I thought so. It, like, grew on me throughout this story. They call him Sean mostly, but... It's Jaunty. Yeah. Jaunty. Jaunty, Jaunty. Get it, son. (laughs) (laughs) The trio arrived at the UC Irvine Medical Center around 9 p.m. That's a University of California's Irvine Medical Center. And they parked the car and headed into the ER. Conrad was taken back while the girls sat in the waiting room reading magazines, watching TV, doing what girls do. Highlights. Highlights, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's always there. Taking Cosmo quizzes. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. The doctor in the ER concluded that Conrad had been bitten by a black widow spider. Oh, my God. I know. Just, like, sitting there? He's just, yeah. That's I don't nuts. know. He must have. I think he came into work, and he had already been bitten. And then he, like, didn't look great. And then yeah. he was just getting worse. Yeah. Still, like, what are the odds? What a bizarre thing. Yeah. I, and I will also say here, too, because in there's only a couple accounts where I see this, and it's mostly people on Reddit. Okay. They were saying that. Around this time, so this was 1980, some people, when they go to the doctor for a spider bite like that, they Mm -hmm. were saying it could have been like a heroin thing, like a needle. Really? Yeah. So, but the doctors would just like classify it as that to kind of keep it low key. Oh. So it could have been something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to say that because like this account is the same way in all the papers and everywhere. Okay. even, like, their son later doesn't even, like, allude to the fact that, like, drug use was being... That's very interesting that they would even do that, that they would have... I mean, I would assume that that would be, like, a very infected site from, like, shooting up all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, oh, we'll save you by not saying that. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. So I just wanted to mention that because I I saw that several times when I was going through some articles and some people were like, oh... You know, because there's obviously conspiracy theories with this since it's oh, a dis- sure. an unsolved disappearance. People love a conspiracy. And if it's out there, why not say it? Exactly. And if anybody out there knows that lingo, too, let me me know if that's even true. Yeah, tell us about it. So they patched him up, um, and he was given a prescription, and he was okay to go home. And it was now around 11 p.m. So Dorothy noticed Conrad was still looking pretty weak, so she told Pam and Conrad to wait at the front entrance of the hospital, and she would go ahead to get the car and drive it around to pick them up. Pam walked with Conrad to grab his prescription. So at this point, this is the only time that they've left Dorothy's side. Like, Pam has been with Dorothy this entire time for those two hours. It's the only time she is now just walking out of the hospital to get the car. And they're getting a prescription in the hospital. In the hospital. Okay, because I know in, like, New Jersey, you would have to pick that up at a pharmacy Exactly. I also feel like, because this is, it seems like it's a, since it's University of California, one, like, I wonder if they just have everything in there. I just wanted to it's make also it. the 80s, so. Yeah, things were totally different. Yeah. I just want to make sure we were all in the same. They didn't leave the building They page. did not leave the building. Yep. Okay, gotcha. So they got their prescription, and then the two went outside to wait for Dorothy. After about 10 minutes, they became a little concerned as to what was taking Dorothy so long. After about 20 minutes, they knew something was up, and so they started to walk towards the parking lot to where the car had been parked. Like, at one point, they were even like, maybe she just forgot where it was. Like, no, that's yeah. too long and weird. It's too long and weird. So they were like, all right, let's just let's just start walking towards the car, yeah. see what's up. As they began to walk, they finally saw Dorothy's car. The engine was running, and the headlights were on. Ooh. 
they did see somebody in the driver's seat, and they, like, waved to her. And then the car started to pull out of the parking lot. They waved her down, but the car turned in the opposite direction toward the exit. And Pam and Conrad began running after her, yelling to, like, wait up and stop. But Dorothy's car sped up out of the parking lot, leaving Pam and Conrad feeling very confused, concerned, and a little annoyed. Oh, that's nuts. I mean, I guess if I guess your first impulse might be like, you asshole, yeah, why, like, are you why are you leaving? Why are you leaving us? <laughs> I don't know. Were you just waiting for us to walk over here so you could be like, peace? You wanted us to see you drive away? Yeah. Rude. Yeah. So they had no idea what came over Dorothy, but figured it had to be something like maybe with her son. You know, so maybe she had to rush back. But at the same time, again, this is 1980. Like, Dorothy had to drive home to let her parents know that she was going to the hospital because they don't have cell phones. They don't have pagers. Yeah, she's not calling somebody. She's not calling anybody. Mm. She wouldn't have gotten a call. They were like, maybe she got a call at the hospital? Like, no. She was very psychic. She, Yeah, she just <laughs> knew something was up with her son and she had to get home. Had to go. Or they maybe they were like, well, it's like 11. Maybe she was out too late and just had to go. She'll be back. Like, what a weird, okay. <laughs> weird. So, Dorothy, to them, they were like, Dorothy wouldn't intentionally leave them unless there was a good reason. No one expected this to be the last time anyone would see Dorothy alive. I don't know. I feel like I did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's awful. I think it's something just happened. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, weird. So let's talk about Dorothy. Please. Dorothy Jane Scott was born April 23rd, 1948, to parents Jacob and Vera Scott. So we oh. just had another. Last week was Ed Kemper, and he yeah, was born in 1948. in December. Mm-hmm. She grew up in Anaheim, California, and from what I can tell, had a very normal, healthy childhood. She had at least one sibling, a brother named Jim Scott. Jim loved his sister and calls her a giver. Aww. Dorothy, by all accounts, was considered a nice, sweet girl. There just isn't a ton of information out there about her life before her disappearance. Yeah. Like I feel like the family kind of keeps a lot of this information close. Mm-hmm. But what we know is that she was in a relationship with a man named Dennis Teary. And in 1976, the two had a son, Shanti, better known as Sean. And I don't know how long they stayed together or how long they were together, but Dennis and Dorothy eventually split up, and Dorothy moved in with her aunt in Stanton, California, which is about 20 minutes from her parents in Anaheim. And again, not super clear as to where Dorothy and Dennis were originally living, but Dennis either stayed or moved to Missouri after the split. So I think Mm. that... From, like, some random accounts, I feel like they might she might have moved to Missouri with him. Oh, and okay. And then had the kid and was like, I just need to go home. And yeah. I don't even know if she gave birth in Missouri or in California. Like, there's not that information. Interesting. Yeah. Shanti keeping his birth certificate real secret. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Their relationship seemed to be okay, though. Dennis would come to visit Sean in California throughout the year. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, so he was like a checked-in dad. He yeah. wasn't just like, see you later, done forever. Exactly. Dorothy has been described by her parents, friends, and coworkers as a good, reliable employee, a pleasure to be around, kind-hearted, compassionate, and a devout Christian who did not drink or do drugs. Okay. She worked a full-time job as a secretary for Swinger's Psych Shop in Custom John's Head Shop, located in Anaheim. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Isn't that like such a wild? I'm a Christian girl who does no drugs but sells paraphernalia. Yes. <laughs> good, good, good. Okay. So Dorothy's father, Jacob, had previously owned the psych shop. So he they must just be like hippies. At least him, you <laughs> Christian know. Christian hippies. Christian hippies. All right. Uh, but had recently sold it to the owner of the head shop, which was next door to the mall strip. 
So Dorothy always worked in the back offices and rarely was ever in the front of the stores. So she wasn't peddling merchandise. No, she was just in the back doing, like, paperwork, taking phone calls, Okay, like that, that. that feels like it makes more sense yes. in my head. When Dorothy wasn't at work, she was usually always home spending time with her son, who was now four years old. One of her co-workers even described her as, as dull as a phone book. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. Also, her son is so cute. I'm looking at pictures right now. Oh, I know. So cute. He's precious. When asked, her father told reporters that Dorothy mostly worked, but had gone on the occasional date with no serious boyfriends that they were aware of. So it's 1980 now. Dorothy is 32, no boyfriend, and when she isn't working, she's at home with her four-year-old son. I got the sense that Dorothy was always a really kind and giving person as well as a practicing Christian, but like most women in their 20s, Dorothy probably left home to find herself and new adventures before deciding it was time to come home. So, Holly, to maybe better get a sense of what Dorothy may have been up to, can you give us an idea of what women in their 20s were doing back in the 70s? I can. Um, There's a lot of really big history for women that happened in the 70s. And also something I read stated that the focus of a family no longer became the household. Like it wasn't, your your main occupation wasn't like be a mom, live in the house, have kids, that's it. It became more commonplace for adults to have lives. Mm. So she wouldn't have been just focused on being a mom to her son. She would have been like, I want to also have a job or educate myself or travel or have friends. Like that was something that would have been encouraged then as opposed to maybe just 10 years before where she would have been way more centric to her household. Okay. So she could live her life. The 70s were a very interesting time to be a woman. The women's movement was in full swing at this point. This was a movement that sought to bring women equal opportunities in education and employment. On August 26, 1970, the 50th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which is the one that give, gave women the right to vote. Nice. That was that day. And on that day, women went out on strike in cities all across the United States. So they just walked out of work. And this walkout was organized by the National Organization for Women. And the leadership from this group stated that the purpose of these rallies were to address the unfinished business of equality. Okay. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool. Right? Women, woo. Yeah, remember, August 26th, that's um, when women got the right to vote. So if you want to do some, like, powerful woman shit, that's a good day. That's a day. Right? Yeah. Maybe we'll do something. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Manny petties. <laughs> Manny petties. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> feel so liberated. Do my yeah. nails. <laughs> Uh, Ms. Magazine launched in 1972. Ms. became a famous part of the feminist movement. It was a publication edited by women that spoke to women's issues. I think you've talked about Ms. Magazine before, but mm-hmm. this is just a refresher course. It has been called, quote, a voice of the revolution that had wit and spirit. Nice. Isn't that nice? Ms. was a women's magazine that did not focus on beauty products, though. They um, famously chose not to publish articles about beauty products at all. Instead, they wrote highly observant exposés on the control advertisers had over the content in other women's magazines. Okay. So they sought to put the microscope on, like, things like, I think I talked about Gillette before. The Mm -hmm. only reason that women shave their underarms or legs is because Gillette wanted to peddle pink razors. Right. So those kind of issues is what Ms. chose to put their spotlight on rather than, like, hey, here's a new lipstick you should buy. Mm Mm-hmm. Or like vacuums make you obedient. Like yes. <laughs> that didn't happen in Ms. Magazine. 
Also, in 1973, we get Roe v. Wade. For those who don't know and maybe, like, live in a little cave somewhere, it's probably nice in there. This was a landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court ruled that the Constitution protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. So many people call this, like, what legalized abortion in the United States Mm -hmm. It struck down many United States federal and state abortion laws and prompted an ongoing national debate in the United States about whether and to what extent abortion should be legal, who should decide the legality of abortion, what methods the Supreme Court should use in constitutional adjudication, and what the role of religious and moral views in the political sphere should be. So Roe v. Wade is clearly very important. And also, this would relate back to Dorothy Jane because, like, she chose to have that son. Yeah. That she was able to, like, make informed decisions about her own life. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Roe v. Wade shape, reshaped American politics, dividing much of the United States into abortion rights and anti-abortion movements, um, while activating grassroots movements on both sides that are still pretty active today. Mm-hmm. Overturning Roe v. Wade is something that can, like, people who are very conservative tend to focus on and, like, what our former president tend to like to talk about a lot. That'll rile people up on either side. So yeah, that's something that's still a big deal. Uh, Also, feminist poetry enjoyed a boom of success with Maya Angelou being one of the most prominent and influential poets of the time to emerge. Nice. In 1971, Take Back the Night marches began cropping up. These were aimed to shed light on sexual violence against women and the organizing of rape crisis centers, the feminist anti-rape campaign, both of these things made a significant difference in the incidence of violence against women. So the National Organization for Women created a rape task force in 1973 to push for legal reform at a state level. Rape charges have always been tricky, but they held like very polarized sentences back then. It was either like all or nothing. And for a while, a rape charge could get a person the death penalty. Mm. But the only reason that it held that kind of charge was it was, you were seen as, um, like, destroying someone else's property. Right. Oh. Wow. Yep. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> then an attorney, rest in peace, RBG, argued that the death penalty for rape was a remnant of patriarchy and treated women as property, as I just said. The Supreme Court agreed and ruled that the practice was unconstitutional in 1977. So, again, women are gaining so much more agency at this time. They're mm-hmm. more of a complete person. Title IX amendments also passed in 1972. Title IX is a federal civil rights law in the United States of America that was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972, and this prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school or other educational program that receives federal money. This is sports programs, too. Mm. Title IX also led to more attention in educational institutions to ending sexual violence against women and opened many scholarships formerly directed only to men. So, fuck the term co-ed, they're just students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that happened in 1972 when these people are like, sexy co-eds got murdered. So, go fuck yourself, people. (laughs) The 1970s also saw in the most comprehensive and graphic round of sexual education films ever to grace the American classroom. Nice. Yeah, this is weird. (laughs) The most famous of which was a 1971 film called Growing Up written by a man named Dr. Martin Cole. In the opening, it states that, quote, women give birth to children and men give birth to ideas. What? (laughs) 
Oh, my God. So this film is very interesting because it's a super graphic sex ed film that, like, uses actual people and scenes and not just, like, little cartoons of, like, a little animated sperm and an egg. This is, like, shows you what the practice of sex actually is. It also taught about, like, the fact that women can enjoy sex. Okay. It doesn't just, you know— Treat us as a baby box, except for that opening statement, which is uh-huh. fucking awful. And the funny thing is, um, like women's rights movement leaders, a lot of them helped put a positive light onto this film. They were like really all about it. And then they saw early screenings of it and they saw that opening statement and they're like, nope, they got real <laughs> mad about it. <laughs> so there's a lot of conflicting views about it. Yeah, the film features, like I said, actual scenes rather than drawings and actual like naked people rather than drawings of naked people and the topics include like scenes of intercourse and masturbation which was previously not included a lot oh yeah they just say you know what like figure that out on your own i know (laughs) the whole thing caused quite a sensation now normally i would be on the side of science i think sex education is a good thing i don't think you necessarily need to get real real graphic with kids in a school real quick but whatever Um, But here's the thing. Dr. Martin Cole is an interesting character. He is a noted British, quote, sexologist. That's not a real science. No. I mean, maybe it is. I'm sorry to sexologists the world over, but (laughs) this guy did some real weird questionable things. Um, So this guy, Dr. Martin Cole, hung his hat on a career training sex surrogates Mm. to help men cure their impotency. And these were just women who would have sex with them in a hospital setting. So prostitutes. Well, that's what a lot of feminists had to say at the time. (laughs) They said, no, no, you are running a brothel. He said, no, I'm not. I'm hiring nurses to help men. Oh, no. Martin. Not good. you got to get your life together. That's not okay. So do you think your insurance would cover this it would Hospital have for a small period of time. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. They were yeah. like, wait a minute. That's Wait. not. Like, I have erectile dysfunction. Exactly. <laughs> like you could just hands. go to a hospital, then some woman would have sex with you. Yeah. That was his, and this is just like wherever he was working in England. It's all very strange. It only stayed around for about 10 years before they had to ten just. Years? 10 years. And then they shut him down. <gasps> and a lot of um, women at the time were like, like I said, you are running a brothel. Okay. So that's the man who made this movie growing up. Can you imagine being one of those guys that actually went because he actually had a problem and he actually thought that this is what he needed to do and then later it being shut down and him being like, oh my God, what was I a part of? That's only going to make his his life worse. Oh, for sure. What if he was like a married guy and now he's like, oh, I just cheated on my wife. That wasn't actual yeah. science. I was manipulated. Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, and those women, they were sex workers. And if you say that they're not, you can go right ahead and <laughs> run off a cliff. Yeah. That's nuts. Sex workers should be paid for what they do. I wonder should- if that's where we got the sexy nurse outfit from because maybe they <laughs> wore sexy nurse outfits. Maybe they did, or maybe they were just sexy because they were, like, sex nurses. Yeah. They're like, all these nurses have really large tips. <laughs> oh, man. So that was Dr. Martin Cole. He had some rather different ideas. In other news, in 1973, uh, the DEA is established. Um, in 1977, Elvis Presley died of a drug overdose. So drugs mm. were also a big thing in mm-hmm. the 70s. In 1972, the Munich massacre occurred, which was a terrorist attack at the Olympics that forever changed the games. Uh, 1973, the Vietnam War ended. In 1976, the first Ebola outbreak hit. 
multiple outbreaks over the course of the year kill 88% of its victims. In 1978, the first test tube baby was born. This is also important in the agency of women because sex is not necessarily a requirement to create a baby. Right. And then in 1979, Margaret Thatcher becomes the first female prime minister of Great Britain. So, um, and just a quick pop culture moment. We talked a lot about 70s fashion, but before, but just to remind you, bell bottoms, platforms, high-waisted jeans, tie-dye, feathered hair, a la Farrah Fawcett. That poster of her became very Mm -hmm. famous then. Hot pants, chevron patterns, big collars, puka shells, and love beads were all very, very cool. And so was roller skating. Yes. Mm -hmm. In (laughs) fact, the 70s saw in the invention and popularization of the roller disco. Oh, yeah, girl. Yes. (laughs) Which is a roller skating rink that was no longer... um, like an athletic arena. It's what our modern rinks are, something designed to have a DJ and like disco lights and a place where people would hang out on like a Friday or Saturday night um, where all the cool kids hung out. And so I would very much like a time machine, please, to go hang out in those. I know. We need one here that's more like that. We do. I mean, there are a couple like an hour away that I've gone to, but like, let's get local. Yeah. So that's um, ladies in the 70s. Cool. Yeah. Okay. It was a powerful time of roller skating and bell bottoms. Yeah, I like it. Right? good okay so yeah so dorothy could have you know been on that train of like powerful women and just trying she would have been like young 20s at the time and maybe just wanted to try something different and then she met that guy and got pregnant and was like i just need to come home yeah well i mean that would have been a a time where she was really motivated to act on her own independence Mm -hmm. she'd be like yeah i want to go do things do new things yeah get out in that world so what? I had a kid. I'm going to live my life anyway. I'm going to do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. I'm going to come home, Mom and Dad. Except for, no, thank you. No, thank you. I I'm had good. a really tough time. That was terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love my son, but that was terrible. <laughs> How about you help with my son? Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So, thank you, Holly. Mm-hmm. So we are now back at the hospital with Pam and Conrad. Dorothy's car had just zoomed away, leaving them stranded. They stood outside for a while, waiting for Dorothy to come back. They're like, maybe she'll just, maybe she's taking a spin. Oh, no. So then they went back into the waiting room, and after two hours. No, don't wait two hours. Of no Dorothy, they decided to call her parents to see if she had gotten home and if her son was okay. Because, again, they're just, like, praying that it just has to do with the son, and maybe so she's coming two, back. they waited two hours two before they did this? hours. I feel like they must have thought that maybe she needed to go. I mean, they were right there. It wouldn't, she could have just had them jump in the car so that she can go home. So I don't know why they still thought, like, she probably just went home and had to get her son and and she'll come back. She's not just going to leave us here. That's not like Dorothy. Yeah. Yeah, This isn't like Dorothy to just leave either. This is weird. So they called her parents, but her parents were like, no, she hasn't come home yet, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) We're the first people you called. So Pam and Conrad are no longer annoyed. Now they're just worried. Mm -hmm. Finally. So after two hours, they called the damn cops. Too long. This is too long. Pam and Conrad. (sighs) They told the UCI police exactly what happened and that they should be looking for a white 1972 or three. I was confused by different places. uh, Toyota station wagon. Okay. The search was officially on. Just kidding. What actually happened was that the police told Pam that Dorothy was 32 years old and she probably just had something to do at 11 p.m. at night. Had she been 
um, like 18, they would have been like, well, she ran away. Yeah. She went camping She forever. has a son. It's probably, and they were like, no, we called the parents. She's not home. They're like, she probably just went somewhere. This is. She'll the, be back. The golden era of serial killers when the cops just thought women walked away. Yeah. And did not care. Ugh. I know. Several hours later at 4.30 a.m. on May 29th, Dorothy's car was found abandoned 10 miles away in a Santa Ana alleyway, burning. Oh, no. Just on fire. Immolating. Good words. Yes. Oh, nice. Police found no sign of Dorothy or anyone else in the car or around the area. But now the police had an investigation on their hands. Ah, uh, yeah. I wish they started hours earlier. Mm-hmm. Jacob and Vera were told about the car and that the search for her daughter would begin immediately. The police asked that Jacob and Vera not go, go to the press yet with any information either. They were like, we only have a couple things that we can go on. Don't go to the press. Like, we need to see what we can get. Also, probably not the best plan, but whatever. Yeah. So, feeling helpless, they agreed. So now the police need suspects. They first look into Dennis Teary, Sean's father and Dorothy's ex-lover. The police were suspicious because Dennis was actually just in town visiting Dorothy and Sean. Oh. So, however, he was quickly dismissed as a suspect because they were able to prove that he was already back home in Missouri during the time of the disappearance. They were able to, like, the dad had actually, like, called him when he was home. So he was, like, talking to him in Missouri. And then they were able to, like, track the calls, too, just to make sure. Okay, good. I didn't want it to be the kid's dad. No. I wanted him to, like, at least have one parent. Mm Mm-hmm. Next, the police start to look into Dorothy Scott's stalker. Because that's right, Dorothy had a stalker. Look at him first! Yeah. Oh, no. So they're doing this basically kind of like all in the same time frame, mm-hmm. but probably Vera is just like, my daughter had a stalker. Do you could think he could have done this? Could you look into her stalker? How about her stalker? Maybe look yeah. at her stalker. Maybe. So several months leading up to her disappearance. Oh, and mind you, this is why it makes me mad because had... Pam and Conrad called their parents earlier. Her mom is aware of this stalker. And she would have been like, well, that's weird. My daughter just, like, flew off like that. And there are some things that come up where she'd be like, maybe we should call the cops. And, like, the mom would have been like, we need—she has a stalker. Find him. Where is he right now? Yeah. Okay, so several months leading up to her disappearance, Dorothy began receiving unsettling phone calls from an unknown man. Sometimes the man would be declaring his love for her, and other times he would talk about taking her life. Oh, no. At first, she thought the calls were just a prank because the voice on the other end sounded a little familiar, but the caller would never give his name or any hints as to who he was. But when the calls wouldn't stop and they started becoming more frightening, Dorothy began to think this wasn't a prank anymore. No, always call the cops. It's never a joke. So I'm unclear as to who she told about the phone calls, but I believe that her her aunt, who she lived with, okay. her mother, and then possibly either a friend or a coworker were aware. Okay. But not the police? Not the police oh, at this okay. time. Oh, okay. She never, all right. They seem to have gone unreported. Oh, so no, Dorothy. Many of the calls made it clear that he was stalking her at work and at home. He would know what she was wearing, how she was interacting with clients, Mm-mm. and what errands she ran. One of the more unsettling calls was when he told her he left a present for her outside on her car, and she cautiously walked out to her car to find one dead rose on her windshield. A dead one? Yeah. She talked to her mom about buying a gun. She got, like, real antsy. 
Um, she, you know, was also like, I'm like putting like my aunt at risk, my son, Her son like, maybe, yeah. maybe I need something to protect myself. But they both were a little nervous about having a gun in the house with Sean. And they probably just didn't know like other pro, there wasn't like gun regulations. Like here's like a lockbox you can put it in. Call the cops first. <laughs> I know. I don't know. So instead, just a week before she was taken, Dorothy began taking karate lessons. But it was only a week before, so I don't know how far she got in her lessons. Self-defense was a big thing back then, yep. too, for, like, women. They were like, learn how to step on a man's instep and knee him in the balls. That'll save you. Yeah. It won't, but I know it can help. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she ever went to the police, but if she did not, it may have been because she had no evidence of a stalker other than the phone calls and now this rose, and she may have thought or been told that the police wouldn't be able to do anything. I mean, when they called the police to let her know that she had gone, they were like, she probably just ran an errand at 11 p.m. at night. Because cops After taking her to the hospital. Zero shits about women at that point yeah. in time. So, mm-hmm. There is more than ample evidence to suggest that. Yeah. So Vera told police about the stalker and the calls. She also tells them about one in particular that really scared Dorothy. And her stalker had called just the past week and told her, and you might recognize this from the intro, quote, okay, now you're going to come my way. And when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. Disgusting. End quote. Yeah. Very unsettling. Wow. I I hate that so much. (sighs) So a week later on Wednesday, June 4th, so a week later from her disappearance, the phone rings at the Scott's house. Vera answers the phone. Hello, Vera asks. Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Yes. I've got her. And then the (gasps) caller hangs up. Are there any conspiracy theories that this was a Golden State Killer thing? Oh. Because it is the exact same M.O., Oh. He called people and he would talk and he stalked them and then he killed them. Oh my and god. And it's the same time period. An area? Do you think the area no, he, it's they're California, like low, but they're southern. They're like way down south. All right. Maybe not. He was the Sacramento area, but he traveled. I thought he was like Washington because it was like Washington State, right? No, he was California. Across California oh, that's between right. oh, 1973 that's right. golden, and yeah. 1986. He became known as the East Area Rapist. Um, there were attacks in Stockton, Contra Costa County, Modesto. He was all over California. So they were like near Ocean's, Ocean. Um, Again, I the feel, feel like I have to learn California's geography because yeah. I talk about it all the time and I so don't there, know what I'm talking about. So Anaheim is like an hour from, it's like an hour southeast, like lightly southeast. East mm-hmm. from Los Angeles. That's like Disneyland territory, right? Maybe, yeah. The only thing I know about Anaheim is that Gwen Stefani is from there. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Just, I just wanted to throw that out there because yeah. I'm just curious if anyone has connected that to him. Not that it's necessarily him at all, but it is curiously like what he did. Okay. And it's in the state at the time when he was active. Right. Oh, wild. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just putting that out there. Somebody uh, make that conspiracy theory more um, streamlined for me. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Jacob told police about the call. Another week goes by and nothing is moving on the investigation. Jacob starts to lose his patience and decides to go to the Santa Ana Register where they ran the story of Dorothy's disappearance the next day. So he was just like, fuck you guys. I'm going to the media. 
On the same day the story ran, the Santa Ana Register editor, Pat Riley, gets a disturbing phone call. So it was a male caller, and he told Riley, quote, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. Oh, God. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. And quote. Yes. Very unsettling. But probably, so whether or not that was the same caller, we don't know. Um, Because I I don't, he didn't get a recording of that. And that could have also been one of those reasons that the police didn't want them going to the media. Because now they're getting like phone calls and stuff. Yeah. But they do say like they didn't get. A lot. It wasn't a ton of people calling, being like, I know who did it. It was really, he just got that one call. Oof. Okay. So these calls continued at the Scott's house every week on Wednesday around 4 p.m. Oh, my God. And every week, Vera would answer the phone to hear the same voice on the other end. Sometimes the caller would give details about the day of Dorothy's murder that no one but the police and her family would know. Why are we not tracing these calls? Um, so one of the facts was that change of the scarf. He was just like <gasps> that re- that it, she was wearing black that day, but then she was wearing red. Ew. He knew that that she was at the hospital, heading to the hospital, and that the man that she ha- was with had gone to the hospital for a spider bite. So oh like my he God. knew these specific things. And the tone of the call would change week to week. Sometimes he would say he was holding Dorothy captive or just ask if she was home. And other times he would tell Vera that he killed her. Oh, God. And the caller never stayed on the line long enough for the police to track. So they did try to. How long do you have to stay on the line? Like, that's nuts. I feel like, well, I mean, also this is a long time ago. I just remember, don't you remember that in like TV shows where they were like, keep them on, keep them on the line. Yes, I for sure do. Yeah. So meanwhile, because sometimes it would just be like, Vera would answer and be like, hello. And just be like, is Dorothy home? And then he would hang up. Like, that's what, yeah. Also, Disneyland is in Anaheim. Okay. Okay. So, Disneyland's there. Cool. Meanwhile, the police are still trying to figure out where Dorothy is and who this caller might be. And they began to question all of her coworkers and then question them all again. Besides assuming the kidnapper was a person she knew, they felt it was most likely a coworker rather than a customer because she rarely came out of the office to work the front of the store. Mm-hmm. But none of the questions really led them any closer to finding who it was. The police did have one other main suspect, a man named Mike Butler. Mike was a army vet who had moved to Ocean County, California and worked as a mechanic. And it's unclear which auto shop he worked at, but I believe he worked at the auto shop that was across the street from Swinger's psych shop. So it wasn't so, too far. And he would have been able to, like, see her mm-hmm. going to work and stuff. Yep. Okay. And it could have been the shop. Like, she might have had to take her car there a couple times to get worked on, yeah. you know, oil sure. changes and stuff. So Mike's sister, who I guess would like to remain unnamed, again, in all the sources. She, I think she's a musician, so I actually think people can find out who oh. it is. So you guys can go and look, and she's kind of popular in that area of oh, California. Right. She worked with Dorothy. Hmm. So his sister worked there and knew Dorothy. Another source of information mm-hmm. about her. And one of Dorothy's friends and several other people had mentioned that Mike seemed to have quite a bit of a crush on her, a little obsessed. Ooh. Yeah. So they looked into him. Um, I couldn't find much more information on Mike about this because, again, I feel like a lot of the information in the case is kind of, like, not out there. Yeah. Some of the information definitely is coming from Sean, who's now older, 
that is still trying to help find some things. Of course. And then probably, I don't, I mean, probably from the parents. And there's news articles that I've read about this and some other people, other crime bloggers that like to expand a bit more on it. Mm -hmm. And they have their theories, which I don't, I I am not quite sure. I don't know that I agree with them. And I'll tell you which ones I don't. Absolutely. Yeah, so I can't find a lot of information on Mike other than the little bits about him being religious and maybe a little off-putting sometimes. Um, He was an Army vet, so I don't know what he went through, if he had, like, any PTSD. Maybe. And if he was actually had, like, a little crush or obsession with her, I did see a picture of him much older, and he is kind of, like, backwoodsy looking. Is he a Vietnam vet? I I think so. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the police weren't able to find any substantial evidence to keep him as a suspect, though. So he just was, after a while, they were like, there's nothing there. How do you feel about this guy? I mean, he's, it seems like it makes the most sense. Okay. Although, in 2014, Mike Butler did die. And they his family did, like, a beautiful, like, write-up of him in the obituary. And then, I like, there was just no confession or anything to like a murder like no sense of that like that was never a thing and the fact that his sister just would like to not be even dragged into it yeah so I don't know if she was like my I don't know it just seemed okay. like I was there wasn't enough there yeah that's the only one where there's like something close to it like I, no one mm-hmm. else pops out in this that's story. hard because that case could be like yeah this is the guy or it also could be like we just really need a guy and exactly. this guy will fit that peg for us and we're just gonna that's what i mean like and there was no one else that could fit that peg okay so that's where i was just like i feel like if he did do it he would just be like yes what i did <laughs> and then died <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah i don't know so either way the police were pretty certain that her killer was the stalker so, Holly, can you tell us more about the type or person or stalker the police might be looking for if they are to believe that the killer and the caller are the same man? Okay. We're going to start with something called obsessive love disorder, which I for sure dated somebody that had this. A hundred percent. Holy cow. Yeah. I read a lot of articles about this, and I was like, oh, that was my life for a little while. And it's very scary. So obsessive love disorder, OLD, which is fun because it just says old yeah. in big letters. <laughs> like, that's not it. Refers to a condition where you become obsessed with, so obsessed, sorry, with one person that you think you may be in love with them. Now, this might not be someone that you actually have a relationship with. It could mm-hmm. just be anyone. It could be someone you saw on the street, someone you had an interaction with at a coffee shop, but you become fixated on the fact that you love this person. And you might feel the need to protect them obsessively. You might um, become very controlling of them as if they were like your possession. They belong to you. Like I said, I, I that was part of my life. Mm-hmm. I had a boyfriend who would drive by my parents' house all the time mm-hmm. just to make sure my car was there or the light was on in my bedroom. Mm. Mm-hmm. He would drive past my car in the parking lot at my school. When I was, and I was like in high school, he would like leave stuff on my car a lot, but it was like romantic. But like, I look back to this now and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I did not know what was going on. And he would show up at like everything I ever did. Like if I was out with friends or I just went out to dinner or lunch, like he would, he would be there in the parking lot waiting for me when I got out. Oh, wow. Yeah. That kind of behavior. Yeah. 
he's he's fine now and living his life. Mm-hmm. I think he worked everything out. But at that point in time, like, holy moly, it didn't stick out as a red flag to me. And it might not stick out as a red flag to you if this is your life. But right. listen, like, that behavior is not, like, healthy relationship behavior. That is veiled stalking mm-hmm. is what that is. And sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference between a person who's just, like, really enthusiastic and in love or even person that just has a big crush, like this Mike guy. Mm-hmm. You might have been like, oh, he drove by her work because he has a crush on her. He watched Pretty in Pink. Ducky rides his bike past yeah. Molly Ringwald's house 16 times a day, and we think that's cute. But really. But really, that <laughs> is stalking, <Yeah. laughs> um, which I hate to say because I love Ducky. He's my favorite. But anyway, let's go through a few helpful hints and red flags in regards to this um, obsessive love disorder, which it appears that almost every stalker has. Yes. This is like the disorder that leads you to st- into stalking behavior. Symptoms of obsessive love disorder may include an overwhelming attraction to one person, but that's anybody could have a crush. Yeah. Obsessive thoughts about that person. You might not know that's happening. Feeling the need to protect the person that you are quote unquote in love with. So they would like kind of invent in their mind dangerous situations. I know this sounds very vague, but they, like you said in your opening, like, I have to make sure you get home safe. Yeah. Oh, I have to, like, watch you get to your car. You're not really protecting them. You're just mm-hmm. watching them. But in your brain, you think, I'm keeping you safe. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm talking about. Possessive thoughts and actions, extreme jealousy over interpersonal attraction. So again, like you said in your opening, if you're looking at someone, you're like, oh, you're cheating on me. But there's no relationship there. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. And another one is low self-esteem. This is like a, just a random. Yeah, obviously you don't love yourself too much if you're doing this. Yes. People who have obsessive love disorder probably don't take rejection super well easily. It just doesn't register with them. You Mm -hmm. can tell them no all you want. They're going to keep going. Which you'll see time and time again with stalking cases. If someone knows their stalker and they're like, you got to go. And they're like, either they say yes and then they just keep doing it. Or they'll say things like, no, I'm never going to leave you alone. Right. So it's that kind of persistence. In some cases, the symptoms can worsen at the end of a relationship or when the rejection occurs. There are other signs such as, and this is more current, repeated texts, emails, and phone calls. So in this day and age, it would be like a thousand texts or like bombing your social media, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But back in the 80s and 70s, it would be like leaving notes on your car or Mm -hmm. on your door or messages on your answering machine or calling your friends and family. Just that constant invasive presence. They always have to be somehow involved in your stuff or even sending you letters. A lot of stalkers will send stuff in the mail Mm -hmm. to your house, like postcards or letters. So it's like just little things like that, that they just constantly are leaving their mark. They also have a constant need for reassurance. They might have difficulty having friendships or maintaining contact with their family members because they're so obsessed with this one person. So sometimes the people in their life will be like, you got to cool it. And rather than maintaining their friendships and family, they will maintain that obsession. They'll choose that over everything else Mm -hmm. in their life. Also, clearly monitoring the actions of another person. If you're, like, keeping tabs on a person to that extent, like, also stalking. Controlling where that person goes and the activities they engage in. So if you have a boyfriend that wants to tell you where you can and cannot go, or a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Women do this, too. This is not just a man behavior. Women 100% are guilty of this. So if there's a person in your life that wants to control where you go, what you do, or know all of those things at all times, that's not someone who just loves you. That's someone who is stalking you. Right. 
This is a very like Ross and Rachel situation, by the way, to uh-huh. anybody who's friends. I hope you guys have realized that that relationship is really, really bad. It is. It's so bad. I mean, it's so problematic, mm-hmm. which I, did, I, I was totally bought into that at first, too. I was like, it's so romantic. They love each other, and they have all this tension. It is not. Ross is a stalker. Yeah. Oh, God. It's super bad. He's the worst, and I will fight anyone that says differently. Yeah. <laughs> on the show and in life. No. I don't know anything I don't know. about him in life, but I know on the show— there are so many, like, of the behaviors I just stated that he will exhibit for you perfectly oh, in yeah. the show. I mean, most of the shows that we grew up with, there's this kind of— behavior. There is this problematic um, trope that's created that what men are expected to do— or not expected to do, what they're celebrated for is to be persistent with women to the point where they wear them down and a woman gives up and is with them. Right. And that's romantic. hmm No. No. That's awful. Yeah. And it exists everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, ter- it's terrible. It is terrible. Like, you're allowed to say no. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to say no, and you're allowed to be persistent about it. And you don't no. have to have any other reason besides, like, I'm just no. I don't feel that way about yeah. you. That is fine. Uh, men, you do not need to press mm-hmm. <laughs> until—and women, too. Again, this is a trope that exists in our day and age with men putting it upon women. But right. I'm sure it exists in— all combinations oh, of people. You just, you don't get to convince someone they love you. That's not a thing. They either do or they don't. You cannot plead your case. This is not court. Right. So anyway, what causes this? You might wonder. Well, there is not a single cause of obsessive love disorder. Instead, it may be linked to other mental health issues. And a lot of these have reared their ugly heads in our cases before, Mm -hmm. such as um, like a a group of attachment disorders. And this group of disorders refers to people who have emotional attachment issues. And a lot of psychologists will attach that will not attach, will will link this to their relationship with their parents. So if they had an insecure relationship or an insecure attachment to their parent, they will then form insecure attachments to others where I, where in they're like desperate to cling to someone and they will make up a situation. Some of these attachment disorders will include disinhibited social engagement disorder and reactive attachment disorder. Um, both of these are from relationships with your parents or caregivers. In disinhibited social engagement disorder, these people might be like super duper friendly and not take any precautions around strangers, just have no impulse control, walk up to anybody. That's their life. With reactive attachment disorder, they may feel like stressed out and have problems getting along with other people. Then we have borderline personality disorder, which will come up with murderers every time. This mental health disorder is characterized by a disturbance with self-image coupled with severe mood swings. These people are far more, like, they swing way more towards self-injury, but they do often, because of their hatred for their self, end up hurting other people. They're also real narcissistic. It's a very complicated disorder. And they have anger problems, big anger problems. They can go from happy to, like, brutally mad within seconds. Anxious and depressive episodes also occur with borderline personality disorder. So when considering obsessive love disorder, personality disorders can cause a switch to flip between extreme love and hate. Mm. So if you're a person with borderline that also has obsessive love, one little action will make you go from I love you to I need to kill you. Yeah. Then we have delusional jealousy, which we've touched on already a little bit. So this is jealousy based on something that isn't real. 
So you're thinking someone is cheating on you, but you have no relationship with them. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about here. According to a 2005 study, delusional jealousy also may be linked to alcoholism in men. Hmm. Then we also have erotomania, which is so fun to say. Yeah, but what is it? (laughs) This disorder is an intersection between delusional and obsessive love disorders. So with erotomania, you believe that someone who's like a famous person or someone who's got a really high social status is in love with you. And it's probably a person you've never met. Or maybe you saw them one time in a, in, on the street and you're like, they looked at me, we're in love. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or like, they liked my tweet, now we're in love. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> Jenna Maroney's stalker. That yes. guy in 30 Rock. She missed him so much. I know. <laughs> but a lot of times this can lead to harassment of the like famous person and people who don't know them at all will show up at their home or workplace. So that's stalking too. Mm-hmm. According to comprehensive psychiatry, people with erotomania are often isolated and have few friends, and are, a lot of times they're unemployed. They, like, just can't be in a, a place with a lot of people. So this would be like John Hinckley Jr., oh. who was obsessed with Jodie Foster, and so he attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would do so this kind of, yeah, this kind of, like, crazy <laughs> stuff comes up from that. Not crazy. Sorry. Delusional. And there's also sprinkled in there obsessive-compulsive disorder, which we've touched on before, and um, obsessional jealousy, which unlike delusional jealousy is a non-delusional preoccupation. So it's like somebody that you're already with, but you're convinced that they're cheating on you. Mm -hmm. This is perceived infidelity from somebody who isn't doing anything wrong. So that's not what we're dealing here, but that can lead to stalking behavior. Somebody can stalk their own partner, and that's probably sort of what I was dealing with, someone who you— have never wronged, but they want to, like, make sure you're not. Right. So they're watching you at all times. Those are the behaviors a stalker might be falling under. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. So I we definitely see some of that in this case. I think we see all, all of, of it. it. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. So that is what the police were looking at. Psychologists were also, like, chiming in, and they mm-hmm. were like, it's going to be— her stalker was clearly had obsessive love disorder, mm-hmm. and um, and then to the extent of the fact that he would switch from being like, I love you, I want to kill you. Yeah. yeah. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. So the Scots were desperate to find their daughter. They even went to a psychic, and then mm-hmm. they went to another psychic, mm-hmm. and even the police tried to use a psychic, but they found nothing. The police and Vera recorded the voice so that they could try to match it with people like in Dorothy's circle, mm-hmm. but the voice was a little too muffled and scratchy, so they couldn't really find any matches. Damn they didn't get phones. The calls continued for four years. <gasps> four years! Four years. That's crazy! Yep. Until one day, on a Wednesday, so it was every Wednesday for four years. God, that's crazy. In April of 1984, when the phone rang, and at this time, Jacob picked up. So Vera always answered it, but this time Jacob picked up. And that's dad. That's dad. Okay. And the caller went silent, and after a moment, he just hung up. (gasps) So he didn't say anything. Did not want to talk to dad. Mm -hmm. Okay. So some theories suggest that the caller recognized Jacob's voice and got spooked that he would recognize his voice too. Oh. Because remember, if it is somebody that either went to Swinger's psych mm-hmm. shop or worked there, Jacob used to own that shop. And he still did. He was like a maintenance worker too. So mm-hmm. he would go in and do maintenance work. All those people like had their numbers Interesting. and stuff. So yeah, so he thought. But at the same time, they did have the recording of the voice. So this is where I was like, Jacob would have known. But maybe yeah. the caller didn't know they were recording the voice. Mm-hmm. So he might have thought like, ooh, this is too close. Mm-hmm. You know, too close for comfort. 
Um, So after that point, the calls had stopped. And then on August 6th, so about three and a half months later, in 1984, a construction worker happened upon skeletal skeletal remains of a dog in some brush off the Santa Ana Canyon Road oh, no. in Anaheim. And underneath the dog bones were more bones. So a lot of times in this area, too, there's um, they, they do actually find a lot of bones in that area from, like, was it like Indian tribal grounds, like, okay. in that area. So I was, sure. like, reading that. They, so it's not uncommon for them to find bones, but they always call it in. They're like, okay. we found something. Ooh, of course, Come you back. have to. Yeah, absolutely. So most of them are going back, like, thousands of years ago, these okay. bones, right? So investigators came to the scene, and they confirmed that they were human bones. They found a pelvis, an arm, two thighs, and a skull. And along mm. with the bones were a turquoise ring and a watch, which had stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980. I don't like that. I don't—like, watches that have stopped, that freaks me out yeah. so much. The Scots could confirm that the jewelry did belong to Dorothy, and dental records would confirm that the body was Dorothy Jane Scott. And it was too late to tell exactly how she died, but the bones did look a bit charred. But they don't think that that happened from when her car was burning. Okay. There was a uh, wildfire that happened in that area like two years uh-huh. prior. So based on what they could say is that she was at least there for two years. So they wow. don't know if, it, if she had been there the whole time or if the body got moved there. <sighs> but she was at least in that spot for two years. Wow. So after the announcement was made in the newspaper, the Scots would receive two more phone calls from the familiar voice asking, is Dorothy home? Oh, fuck you. And Jacob died in 1994 and Vera in 2002 without ever knowing who killed their daughter. And Dorothy's son, Shanti, is still working on finding his mother's killer today. Oh, I hate that. I know. It's so sad. So one of the things when the caller would call and obviously also in the newspaper, um, when he talked to the editor, he said, like, she cheated on me. And they kept saying, um, they were like, she wasn't dating anybody. She wasn't cheating on you. And what a lot of people think is that it had to do with Conrad, that she took him to the hospital. I think it was the dad. I think it was he was home with them for a couple days. He was Maybe. like, I see you with this man and the son. Yeah. And that's why, like, my openings kind of like that, where I think that it was he saw her with that guy for several days. Yeah, no, that totally you know? makes sense. But that delusional jealousy issue, it could have been both too, yeah. like any other man. Mm-hmm. And it could have been that, or I give you this, if he saw her with the dad for like a few days and he was like kind of getting heated about it. Mm-hmm. And then seeing her with Conrad triggered more of that. Mm-hmm. That could have been a tipping point where he's like, well, now I got to kill you. Right. I know. I don't know. Some uh, some believe that she somehow made a call to him in the hospital, too. But that's where Pam was just like, she was with me the whole time. She didn't make a phone call out of the hospital. She wasn't trying to, like, meet up with this guy at all. Also, wouldn't the hospital staff, once they found that out, she would have to ask. Yeah, Unless right? she was used a payphone. And in yeah. which case, couldn't they, like, make records from all the payphones? Couldn't they find that? Right. And if she asked at a front desk— wouldn't one of those people have said, oh, yeah, that woman asked me to make a phone call? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Your theory, I, w- I want somebody to look that up, that Golden State Killer I thing, I did a little bit, okay. and I'm not the only one who has said that. Okay, great. So there are other people who think it's possible. It's not super consistent, but there are enough similarities that I, I'm not the first, I didn't think I would have been, 
would have been cool if I was. Right. Um, but I wasn't, I'm not the first person to have mentioned it. So okay. you never know. Yeah. I didn't explore it fully. I just Googled it to be like, I wonder if this hits at all or if I've, I'm either way off base or the first person to think of it. Right. Neither. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's look into that more because that would be interesting yeah. to find out. Because I didn't even, I mean, that's why I don't always do these because I have no idea about these stories. So. <laughs> well, we haven't covered the Golden State Killer yet. Mostly yeah, because. That one terrifies me. I listened to probably an hour of the book and I shut it off and I couldn't sleep for a week. Yeah. I listened to the, a comprehensive podcast about it and I've done a lot of reading and read a lot of the Michelle McNamara stuff mm-hmm. and it is it's disturbing. So scary. Yeah. The only thing that makes it a little less scary is that he's in jail. Yeah. Great. Yeah, they finally caught him. But for like a million years he got away with it yeah. and it's nuts. Mhm. But yeah, you never know. Yeah, wild. Yeah. Ooh, good job. That's a scary you. one. All right. Well, who do you want to toast? Well, obviously, I want to toast Dorothy. Yes. Because, oh no, that's a terrible time. I know. Let's toast Dorothy. And her mom, Vera, who got those phone calls every Wednesday for four years. I know. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. And the thought process you must have gone through like, I'm going to change my phone number. But I can't because what if I get some information that's valuable at some point in time? Wait, like what if what if Dorothy is not dead and he's calling and what if she can call me? Yes. So you just have to take it. Yeah. For four years. So cheers to Vera. And um, yeah, I think those are my toasts. Okay. Do you have anybody else you want to get in there while we're mm, toasting? I get to Sean. He's like Shanti. Yeah. He's, like, still out there. Yeah, Shanti. Yeah. Cheers to him. Sorry that this happened to your life. It's awful. I know. And if we ignored a faceless man that gave us a little too much attention, we we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. My daughter had a stalker. Do you think he could have done this? Could you look into her stalker? How about her stalker? Maybe look at her stalker.